speech to Job and his uh, now is Job's response tonight to Bildad, and uh, we're going to look at that and uh, throughout chapter chapter number nineteen. Probably not going to get to touch every verse. But we are going to finish the chapter. I'm determined to go one chapter a week, so we'll get through that. Uh, is ten o'clock good? If we finish by ten, okay, that's good. All right, good. We'll try to get it. This this chapter is a little longer, you know, so I just wanted to. Make sure. All right, let's pray and we'll get started. Thank you, Father, for loving us. I pray you'd be with us this evening now as we work through this this, uh, this passage, some things that I really think we can learn from it. I pray you'd help it to be clear. In Jesus' name, amen. So Job's response focuses on his suffering and some great statements of faith in God as well. Um, we understand the suffering. We've been kind of doing this ping-pong game between him and his friends back and forth, and the insults have been flying back and forth. But tonight... As going through here, I think there's some things here that we can grasp onto that will really uh, help us and encourage us. Uh, let's read. I'm going to read five verses, but then we'll just start working through it. Job answered and said, How long wilt thou vex my soul and break me in pieces with words? Uh, think about those. that question there. Break me in pieces with words. Have you ever been broken to pieces with words? Remember that little poem in school? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's the biggest lie we ever heard. That it's abs- Sticks and stones cannot hurt near as badly as words can. That's what Job's asking that question. These ten times have you reproached me. You are not ashamed that you make yourself strange to me. And be it indeed that I have erred, my error remaineth with myself. If indeed you will magnify yourself against me and plead against, my, against me my reproach, uh, he's talking, he starts out here dealing with the abusing by his friends. Uh, their speeches have been, uh, that's, th- th- there's no other way to put it. It's been abusive to Job. It's just been adding to his misery. He talks about the continuation in verse 2. How long will you vex my soul? I think this is interesting because you remember Bildad? In fact, go back to chapter 18, verse 2. What are Bildad's first words? How long? The previous chapter where Bildad spoke was in chapter 8. You know what his first two words were? How long? I think it's just interesting that Job throws this back at him. How long? You want to talk about how long? How long I talk? How long are you going to be beating on me with your words, breaking up, uh, breaking me up with those words? So he asked the same question, not about the length of the speech, but about the abuse in the speech. How long will you keep abusing me? In verse 3, he says, These ten times have you approached, reproached me. Now the phrase ten times in the Bible is a for a figure of speech that really means many times. Uh, it's found because it hasn't happened literally ten times here, but it's found several times throughout the Bible. Jo- Jacob spake of Laban changing his wages ten times in Genesis thirty-one seven. Probably it was a figure of speech just to saying he's doing it too much. God complained that Israel had tempted God ten times in, in Numbers fourteen twenty-two. Uh, Daniel and his friends were found ten times better than those uh, uh, around him in Daniel 1.20. So Job, really what he's saying here is you, you've been keeping abusing me. Many times uh, you've done it and he was right in that. And then uh, the cruelty in the abusing, verses uh, 2 and 3. You vex my soul, he said, uh, and break me in pieces with words. You reproach me, not ashamed that you make yourself strange to me. He, he mentions four things that the abuse did to him. They involved despair, which is vexing his soul, destruction, breaking me in pieces, disgrace, that's reproaching me, 
and disaffection, making yourself strange unto me. So all these things they're bringing into Job's life when they should be bringing encouragement, uplifting words, putting their arms around him, loving him back. Rather, they're, they're pouring this on him. So they're not comforters in any sense of the word. And in verse 3, he tells him, you're not ashamed with it. His abusers are so calloused in doing all this too. I mean, it does, doesn't uh, stop him for a second looking at what they're doing to him. He had been ruined, his wealth, his children, his health, and yet his friends continue to abuse him without shame. Their callousness reminds us how greatly sin can harden the heart of a sinner. And make no mistake, a critical spirit is sin. I really believe that. Uh, and it sometimes, in, in the Christian's life, can be the worst kind of sin. A critical, hard spirit towards other people. So I, I would put that in the, the category of sin. And sin hardens the heart. It takes away feeling, sensitivity. It takes away guilt. It takes away affection, love for others. Sin will harden your heart to the point where you're not able to feel for others anymore. And hardened sinners are not shamed by the deeds they commit either. This is what he says here. You're not even ashamed of it. Now, go on to verse 4. But indeed, be it indeed that I have erred, mine error remaineth with myself. This statement is a confession. The word translated erred means unintentional sins or sinning in ignorance. That's a, what he's talking about here. He's not confessing some great evil, which his friends have been insisting he's guilty of this whole time along. He confesses that he's a sinner, but not to some great sin. Uh, that he does not commit that he didn't commit, and he's right, by the way, in saying that he did not commit some great sin to bring this trouble on him. He's simply stating the fact that all men are sinners, as we see in Romans 3.23. Now, moving on to verse 5. If indeed you will magnify yourselves against me and plead against me my reproach, they, <laughs> how proud have they been talking to Job? Uh, we see this pride in all the speeches that they gave him. And I have to wonder, I've mentioned it before, we get tinges that they enjoyed this, that some of them were almost glad it happened to him. You remember Job was the greatest, which means it included them. He was greater than them at some point, and now they're under this, and I think there's some kind of secret joy here in Job experiencing these calamities. The human heart is often glad to see those above him fall. Now, it's not a good thing, but that's just how we are, because... We're sinful creatures. And then in verse, uh, I, I want to jump down a little bit into verse 21 because it just goes along with what we're saying here. We'll come back up. But in verse 21, Have pity upon me, have pity upon me, O ye my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Compassion, not criticism, is what Job wants from his friends. Uh, we see the plea for compassion here. Have pity on me. O oh, ye my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Job shows his desire for compassion in that he mentions it twice. Have pity on me. Have pity on me. He also shows the purpose for the comfort that he wanted because the hand of God, he's afflicted by the hand of God, he, he says here. The hand of God has touched him here. He's experienced great inflict affliction, we know that, and he needs some comfort. But instead of compassion... He's got persecution. I read this today, and I haven't really ran down the path of checking it all out, so 
but I thought I would share it with you. Uh, in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, the word for compassion comes from the root word for womb, like, uh, the womb that you're born from. It has the picture of a faithful mother giving all that she's got to bring a little child into the world. And if we apply this to the human experience when it's as far as compassion goes, compassion gives the other person another chance at life. That's really what we do when we forgive and when we allow them. In other words, I don't hold this against a failure against someone. I have compassion. I offer them a fresh start. By the way, don't we want that from others? Yes, we want that from others. We want others to give us a second chance. We want others to understand our failures and forgive us of them. We need to do the same for them. So this type of compassion dramatically changes the way that we relate to each other, and it's the very heart that God puts into mothers. I think that's an interesting thing. The root word for womb and the root word for compassion in the Hebrew language is the same. In verse 22, uh, we'll come back in a minute, but I want to go forward here just to make the point here. Why do you persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? Job here speaks of the confusion of the persecution. Why? They have no justified reason for their attacks. It's a good question. <laughs> he's already asked God why that's happened, but now he's asking them, why do you keep piling on? Job believes why God has afflicted him. He just said so. So why are you adding on to that affliction? And here's the kicker. He says, you're not satisfied with my flesh. So all that's happened to Job, including the very boils on his body. I don't think we've had enough, Job. I think you need a little more. So here it is. We're shoveling a little more on you. Isn't that something? The friends that came by, and uh, they're not satisfied with his suffering. Verse 29, he said, Be ye afraid of the sword, for wrath bringeth the punishments of the sword, that ye may know there is a judgment. He warns of the consequences of their abusing him. Now he mentions at least four aspects here. They are the scare for the consequence. Be ye afraid for the sword. One of the problems is of our day is that men don't fear judgment. Uh, Dwayne Cruz used to ask me that in our conversations a lot. Is, does no one fear God anymore? And that's a question that's, that is, uh, it's a good question, isn't it? That people just don't seem to fear God anymore. They'll say anything. There just doesn't seem to be anything off limits. And we can expect that from the world, but too many times God's people don't seem afraid of God anymore. They just do whatever they want to do and hurt who they want to hurt, not thinking about uh, the consequence. And so, the scare. Secondly, the sureness of the consequence. Wrath bringeth the punishment of the sword. The wrath of these men in abusing Job, this is going to bring sure judgment. And then thirdly, the severity of the consequence in the word sword. Sword speaks of great severity. It's not going to be trivial. And then fourth, the schooling in the consequence that you may know there is a judgment. God's punishment, his judgment, always instructs the one whom he is judging. I'm working through the book of Judges. We're back in Judges again this coming Sunday, uh, preaching about Samson. And, uh, but, but working through the book of Judges, we see that his judgment on Israel always had a lesson he was trying to teach them. And, uh, and, and so that's, there's always instruction in it, and that's a warning to us as well. Uh, how do we treat other people? How do we treat those weaker than us? 
By the way, I believe the true measure of a man is how he treats uh, those who can do nothing for him in return. I think the true measure of a nation is how it treats its weakest members. You can tell a lot about a nation how it treats the unborn and the elderly. And when you have a nation that's for euthanasia, is it? And abortion, both? That's a problem. How do we treat those that can do nothing for us in return? All right, then let's get to the afflicting of God. All this uh, has been in response to Bildad and talking about the abuse, but now it goes kind of about God afflicting him. And speaking critically of God has gotten Job in trouble with his friends so far because it opens the door for them to come down on him. Aha, see, you're against God. You're anti-God and you're questioning him. How dare you? Well, uh, we, we often... We know that his criticism of God, his critical questions, come after his troubles, not before. That's an important thing for us to remember. This doesn't make it right, but often people speak from pain. Okay, We all do it. When we're in bad pain, we're not as nice to our mate as we might be when we're not in pain, because pain tends to make us crabby. And, all, and the, the stuff Job was going through and Job's wife went through, all right, this is some serious problems. So, despite his criticism uh, of God, Job later makes some great and wonderful statements of faith and it proves that his heart was right. But sometimes our pain screams out against our beliefs. I mean, we just have to be patient with people on that. Let's uh, throw through a few of these here. The reasoning in verse 6. Know now that God hath overthrown me and hath compassed me with his net. This statement plainly blames God for Job's troubles. Satan is not mentioned as the reprobate who was the real cause of the troubles. By the way, not everything that happens to us is God-ordained. Sometimes it's God-allowed, but it's not always from Him. Why do we call it, I've mentioned this before, but on our insurance, why do we call it acts of God? You notice that with hurricanes and fires and hail? And let, I'd like a, one insurance company to insure acts of Satan. Wouldn't that be nice? And then something bad happens, we can blame him instead of blaming God. Uh, we humans are forever blaming God for troubles, and many of them have been caused by Satan, or ourselves sometimes too. And then uh, we move from the reasoning to the rejection. In verse number 7, Job feels that God has rejected him. And he's, he's afflicting him with two specific complaints. He says, first of all, Behold, I cry out of wrong but I am not heard. So his first cry is that his prayers aren't answered. He has prayed for help and for answers, but so far God has not answered him or eased his, any of his burden. So Job concludes that God's not listening. Haven't we all been there before? God's not hearing me. That's what it seems like if he doesn't answer right away. And like Job, we often interpret a delay as a denial. Remember who else did that? Mary and Martha. Jesus, come quick. Lazarus is sick. Jesus said, I'll be right there in four days. And so he comes in after Lazarus is dead. He's in the tomb. Both Martha and Mary said the same thing. If you'd have been here, like we said, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, God's delay is not a denial, uh, necessarily. Job's innocence is not affirmed. So his prayers aren't answered, and then his innocence. Look at verse 7 as well. I cry aloud, but there is no judgment. The word translated judgment is the idea of justice. Job wants justice. Job wants to be vindicated. 
His friends have accused him of being a great sinner because of how he has suffered. Job knows he has not, uh, had, has not done some great sin like David and Bathsheba. He hadn't murdered anybody. He hadn't done any great sin to bring this on him. And he, but he has still suffered and he is asking God to affirm his innocence. He says, I cry aloud, but there is no judgment. Now this is absolutely natural. We want vindication. All of us do. Christopher Hutchins, Hitchens said this, my idea of earthly happiness is to be vindicated in my own lifetime. Is that your idea of happiness? I, I would say it would make me happy be vindicated in different areas of my life. We're desperate for it. We'll manipulate things to get vindication. When we quit a job out of anger, we hope that company fails. When we leave a church on a bad note, we hope it crumbles. When we fall out with a friend, we hope their life falls apart. Why? Because we want to be vindicated. Now, it's not always in a bad way. I think those are kind of negative there. Uh, sometimes we're just like Job. I'm not guilty! And God, please make it clear to them. I want to be vindicated of this. And is that a fair cry? It is, really. I mean, Job says, I haven't done what they said I've done. Vindicate me, O Lord. Raphael Ruiz spent 25 years in prison from 1985 to 2005. And uh, spent to 2010. And, uh, right, that the math works. I know he went in in 85. Uh, so, but he was 25 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. I, I, I always think that's one of the worst things that could happen. I mean, just to be stuck in prison. And he spent a lot of that time in solitary confinement for a crime he did not commit. He was released in 2010, and then he worked 11 years to try to clear his name. He had lawyers on it, he reached out to different organizations and they finally made enough noise to where in 2021 a judge reversed it and cleared him of all the charges. I found it interesting. He had been free. He's free. He's out of jail. It's not like he's going to get that time back. But he wanted more than that. He wanted to be vindicated. I can identify with that. I can identify. I did not do this. And I want to be vindicated of it. And he fought and he fought and he fought until January of 21, they finally said, yes, you are correct, you are innocent, and he is completely and utterly vindicated. And I heard him interviewed after that, and the, the relief in his voice. And that is something we all want, and that's what Job wanted here. He didn't do wickedly, and he, he's begging God to do something about vindicate him. I have found in my limited experience in ministry and in life that sometimes you don't get vindication. You just don't. And that's a tough thing. It's one of the questions that I have when I interview. Uh, we were looking for a youth pastor and, and also for a summer intern. When I was interviewing different people, this is one of the questions I asked them. Do you, how important is vindication to you? Because that's something in ministry that I have learned we'd better let go of real quick. Because if we have to be vindicated on everything, every problem, uh, every conflict, we're going to, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You're just not going to be vindicated on everything. And uh, sometimes years later you are, sometimes you never are. And we have to learn uh, to go on. Psalm 26, 1.
David cries out, Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I will not slide. Now that word judge, in the beginning there, the original word for the judge, the word judge is shafat, and it means vindicate. And he's, he's basically saying here, vindicate me, Lord. It has judgment at its core, and that's why he uses the word judgment there. Uh, David is praying, judge me, Lord. Look at me, and look at the wicked, and then look at me. See the way I have lived, a life of integrity, how I have depended on you, and I've had faith in you. So judge me, and in your judgment, vindicate me. Why? Because we all want vindication. We desire it so much. That's what Job's praying for here. Please vindicate me. We all want it. We all want it like Job did. We like David did. God, instead of affirming Job's blamelessness, he seems to only afflict him more. And Job is crying out for a lack of justice. I can understand his cry. I've been there. You probably have too. We want vindication. But the best thing you can do, friend, is to just let God have it. Let him have it. He says in Romans 12, 19, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And there are some things uh, in my life, in my ministry, uh, people that conflict we've had in the past, and to this day, I have not been vindicated. And it's all right. We're going to go on and let God handle it. Amen? And so uh, there's people in Michigan, there's people where, you know, in my past that, that it's just, that you, you wish you could call them up. Hey, see, I, I was right, but it's not happened. All right? it's not, I haven't gotten that phone call. I always hear uh, other people, you know, years later I got a call and, and they were uh, very apologetic and all that. That Maybe I shouldn't have changed my number. I don't know. So it hasn't happened yet. But it's not going to, it's not going to, we just have to get to the point in our life where we, we can turn it over to God. We've got to. That's where Job was at here. Verse 8, he hath fenced up my way that I cannot pass. He has set darkness in my paths. Restriction. Job complains that God has greatly restricted him. Uh, and it's true, his troubles did restrict him, but Satan was behind it. Satan is never in the business of giving freedom. He's the one that fences us up. He's the one that restricts us. And uh, then he talks about darkness as well, and that's another way that restricts he talks about reproach. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. Verse 9. That's a loss of prestige when he has taken the, stripped me of my glory. He had much glory in his pre-trouble days. He was a well-known man and a well-respected man. People uh, uh, sought his counsel. He would have, I mean, I'm just using present-day vernacular, but he would have been the one to call, uh, given uh, uh, speaking engagements at graduations and and uh, he'd have been the one that the folks would have brought in and for that type of thing. And then also a loss of position. He had taken the crown from my head. Uh, he's lost much position uh, by his troubles. Job would have been the kind of guy that would have been on the city council. He would have been the kind of guy that would have been leading different areas and different uh, programs and companies and all that stuff. He wasn't there anymore. Even his servants didn't take orders from him anymore. Look at verse number 16. I called my servant and he gave me no answer. How low do you have to sink when your servant won't even answer you anymore? Job's lost his position. Then look at his ruin in verse number 10. The restriction, the reproach, and the ruin. Verse 10, he hath destroyed me on every side when I am gone, and my hope he hath removed. Hope hath he removed like a tree. 
continuing on the theme that God is the one who afflicted him. He talks about the ruin of his possession, the ruin of his person. I am gone. It's like saying, I'm a goner. Uh, he feels death is lurking at the door. The ruin of his prospects. My hope is removed like a tree here. His, uh, he, he, this is primarily his secular hopes, not his religious hopes. In a minute, Job's going to talk about uh, how he still has hope, religiously speaking, in the Lord. But, but as far as life, he feels he's totally ruined. And then he talks about rage. In verse number 11, he hath also kindled his wrath against me. This is frustrating to Job. He doesn't understand why God's so angry at him. His friends think they know because of his great sin, but Job knows he doesn't have any great sin in his life. And so uh, he is uh, dealing with those. But uh, for sake of time, I want to jump down to verse 25. Uh, Job had... Every, every child of God is going to come to times in their life, maybe not to extent of Job, but where they feel like, Everything's against me. I got this against me. I got that against me. All my circumstances are against me. Look at verse 19. All my inward friends abhorred me, and they whom I loved are turned against me. Everybody he's loved is turned against him. And every child of God will experience that sooner or later. Jesus had his Judas. Uh, Job had his friends. uh, Paul had his Demas that forsook him. Every believer is going to have close friends that forsake them. In time of need. So what is the answer for us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ? And that's what Job does in verse number 25. He said, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. What a tremendous profession of faith in Christ. Something in which Job here, uh, vindication. We talked about this, uh, this, this standing at the latter day upon the earth. That speaks of Christ vindicating the righteous in the last days. And he's got his eye on that. He says, I know in the last day Christ will stand. And this, you know, Job, he, he has some doubts that he talks about with, about God throughout the way why this is happening to me. When it comes down to the rubber meeting the road, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And the mists have cleared, seems like here. The clouds have lifted. And Job sees the way that things really are. This is the attitude we need to have. When life is crumbling, I know that my Redeemer liveth. What a blessing that is. And we didn't get to go through all the complaints, but they get kind of tiresome after a while. But we can't identify with him, can't we? Uh, all that he's going through. So a couple of lessons we can take about that tonight. I was really the main takeaway that I took anyway from this study was the, the vindication part. It's something all of us so desperately want. And it's something we sometimes manipulate to get. And it's something very much best left up to God. Let Him have it. Let Him sort out those details. You know why, by the way? Sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes I'm wrong. Okay, Sometimes I don't deserve vindication. I always want vindication. Sometimes I don't deserve it. So that's why we let God decide that. Okay. Now we think... We judge the value of other people and whether or not they like me, right? And if somebody doesn't like me, they're not a good person. And uh, you gotta, you got to come to a point in your life, i got to come to a point in my life, there can be really good people that don't like you. <laughs> and they can still be good people. So, you know, we, we, can, we need to just get beyond, step above it, and realize that God's in control of these things and let Him have these things. Father, thank you.